Welcome to the 168th episode of Reverse Rep Radio. I'm Andy Ryan. And I'm Toby Chad. It's 16 years to the day since Pakistan's Misbarol Hook scoop shop was caught on the boundary and gave India the inaugural T20 World Cup. Now, a few episodes ago, we read a rather good book on the history of 2020, which talks about this moment as being pivotal in kind of winning over of actually a very dubious India to the idea of 2020 cricket. And the rest, as they say, is history. I'm forgetting what that book was, though. Can you remember? It Just was so we can the recommend it Cricket 2.0, Cricket 2.0, Tim Wigmore. Yeah, I'm I'm perpetually wowed by your power of recall. As soon as <laughs> I finish a book, it just goes in one ear and out of the other. Other memorable things about that game? We were at university, I, I think, was... when that game was when that game was played. I remember we watching were. it. It's funny how you, with a lot of these things, memory plays tricks on you. In my head, Misbrill Huck had to go for this. It was the last ball of the game. And that's mm. not true at all. Pakistan needed six, but they had four balls to go. So, you know, he could have done it in, well, not quite in singles, but in ones and twos. Had he been had he been scooping throughout the innings? I'm trying to remember. I don't remember I it he... as, as having been a kind of trademark shot of that innings, but you, you remember something I differently. Think... I think he had, but I think what's most striking about it now, if you see it, is it's not striking because we're so used to mm. the scoop, aren't we? You know, we're seeing we're used even to now even dear old Rooty in the you know exactly the test arena. Now. Yeah. Okay. So um, in this the one hundred and sixty eighth episode of Reverse Rex Radio, um, we're going to be talking as we always do about the things in cricket that have caught our attention over the last uh, few weeks since we recorded. Um, Andy is going to be taking us us back for a rather um, wonderfully titled from the archives, Warney and the Wall. Um, and we are going to be reviewing a radio play, first broadcast on Radio 4 in 1980. So there you go for a piece of for a piece of history. Um, now, Andy, where have you been getting your cricket fix since we last recorded? So with the wonderful company of two friends in Bristol, who you both know very well, um, I ticked the county ground at Neville Road off my list. I, I was there for New Zealand's T20 against Gloucestershire on a not particularly summery Sunday evening. With the ever busier schedules, you just don't get very many of these tour games against the counties anymore. So full credit to New Zealand for, for signing up to this one. It's actually a real shame as they give fans who don't live near the test grounds a mm. chance to see the visiting stars. In terms of Neville Road, or I think it's called the Seat Unique County Ground currently. The Seat um, Unique, I, oh <laughs> I, I, I have a soft spot for grounds like this that are squeezed into residential areas. And I know they're deeply impractical, hard to develop, hard for parking, all this sort of stuff. But it does make them truly feel a part of the place mm. that they represent. Mm. And there is that special pleasure that we had in leaving the home and just wandering through the residential streets um, up to the map. Rather than going to a kind ground- of sports sports park or something like that. Exactly, exactly. The very practical and yet soulless, you know, out of crowd, out of town grounds with huge car parks and this sort of thing. It's um, kind of a throwback I, I, to. Um, uh, sorry to cut you off. It's kind of a throwback to you know when you see that footage of kind of um, Bramall Lane and places like that mm. with just the rows and rows of terraced houses, sort of surrounding it and those grounds feel like a bit of a miracle in amongst in amongst that that context well it's exactly that it's that idea that the ground feels really just another part of the town or city Mm. and that also for people who live nearby it's something that they can 
you know walk walk up to it's not a sort of expedition to get mm. to in the same way um in terms of the ground the newish pavilion there uh, i think it was built about 10 years ago it is sort of functional rather than attractive i wouldn't um i wouldn't say it's a great success but i i do like exactly what we've been saying the houses pressing up against the ground and there are these new flats that overlook it that in their own way are quite attractive and it was quite fun seeing people you know out on their balconies watching mm. the game um, a quick word on the game, Gloucestershire went for a youthful side and I was a bit torn on this. Part of me thinks that if touring sides like New Zealand are going to make time for a game like this, you owe it to them to pick your best team. But I can see from Gloucestershire's point of view, it's not a competitive game. It's a great opportunity for your youngsters. And they did give the Black Caps a decent contest with the game still alive just until a few overs to go. Was there anyone who you were hoping to, to see who wasn't who wasn't playing because of the selection policy? Good question. I suppose, uh, with due respect to Gloucestershire, I was sort of mostly interested in seeing the New Zealanders. Yeah. And I got to see Glenn Phillips, who is sort of uh, currently a bit of a starring light for them, particularly with the bat. And he didn't disappoint. He hit a, a flashy 50. Um, and also got to see Ish Sodi bowl, which was was exciting. Mm, mm. There's no Kane Williamson at the moment, which was a shame because I've never seen Kane Williamson and that would have been fun to see, but he is uh, pretty sure he's still injured at the moment. Mm. But um, one particular word of credit, I guess, to the New Zealand team, it was a, actually a pretty miserable evening. It kind of drizzled on and off. And I think a lot of international teams would have sort of made clear to the umpires that they were yeah. not playing on in not this, you know, this. risk of injury, etc. And I have to say credit to them. They seem to get on with it without without fuss and interruption. They're such, um, they're such good blokes, aren't they? The, the, the New well, Zealanders, they just, they just continue that reputation wherever they go. This is this is the yes, the obligatory part of any discussion about New Zealand where yeah. you have to reference aren't how they nice, nice they are. Guys? And um, uh, you've been thinking about nice guys as well. <laughs> well, I was about to, to, to talk about um, Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell, and um, let's leave uh, views on, on their niceness or otherwise um, to one side. Um, what has Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell got to do with cricket? I don't know, but um, in this context, not very much. It's simply that I was listening to their um, podcast the other day and in it Rory Stewart was talking about Theresa May and the fact that Theresa May was relatively rare as a ex-prime minister who had decided after um, losing the top job to stay on the backbenches kind of serving her constituency and um, it may feel like a longbow how I'm going to bring this back to cricket but I was I was thinking about this and thinking about um, Alistair Cook in particular and how um, some cricketers when they retire well most cricketers I suppose when you retire from a top job like being test captain you um, in well generally what happens is a, is a life of punditry um, follows and a, a, a lucrative um, speaking circuit but Alistair, Alistair Cook has done something um, very different I suppose there have been a couple of He's one of a couple of interesting recent examples, um, one of whom is, of course, Joe Root, who resigned from the captaincy, I suppose, precisely to save his test career and enable him to concentrate on on, on his batting, which he's done very um, successfully. Um, the reason why I was thinking about Alistair Cook, his successor as, as England captain, of course, is his, sorry, his predecessor as England captain, is that um, there was a story about a game that he was playing, and I think he's just finished playing in the Essex-Hampshire um, game, where apparently on one of the mornings, um, there was a rumour going around the ground that uh, he was going to, at lunch, announce his retirement from all cricket 
effective immediately effective the end of, of that game there was going to be some small little drinks function and then he was going to kind of disappear off um no one really knows seems to know where that rumor came from but essex came out straight away and released a statement in which they said um no such decision has been made no such announcement is going to be made today and um at the uh, you know it it'll be discussed at the end of the season as these as kind of as these as these things already are and i did sort of think to myself again going back to what you were saying in terms of good guys that kind of what a what a great statement it is of who alistair cook is that not only has he decided after retiring from the test captaincy you know he doesn't he hasn't gone to the ipl and and bucket loads of money he just plays you know four-day county games for essex for the for the for the for the love of it but also that he doesn't um kind of draw attention to himself as an ex-captain inevitably might he's managed very elegantly to kind of sidestep the limelight a bit and just to become a county cricketer again in a way that seems very intentional and probably is actually quite quite kind of tricky um to do and i thought this thing around the announcement and then kind of quashing it was another example of how it was sort of hey this this really shouldn't be the main story let's just get on and play some play some cricket i think it boils down a lot to what you're still getting out of the game doesn't it i mean cook Mm. And there have been repeated things where people have at times said, um, oh, you know, couldn't he have still kept going for England a bit longer? And he had clearly reached a point where the joy he was getting... He just wasn't enjoying it. Been, yep. I think the, the pressure and everything had just diminished. And he's gone back to County Creek and seems to be having an absolute an absolute whale of the time and sort of rediscovered that, that pleasure. Um, I think the Root-Stokes thing is really interesting, as you point out. I think how seamless it's been, the returning to the ranks. And I'm trying to think of other examples, but I wonder how much that often just depends on kind of trust and friendship. You yeah, know, and who, yeah, exactly who that, who that next captain is. You know, it obviously hmm. didn't work quite so well when kind of Peterson, you know, took over from, from Flintoff and that whole kind of dynamic. But um, it just seems that... I mean, I, I think in a way Root must just be grateful that his... Mm. career has effectively been saved and you know there was that conference he gave where he just talked about how utterly miserable he Mm. was as captain and the fact that you know suddenly Stokes was there to take that burden off him and to frankly be way better at it than him um, must have felt like a real relief as ever as our you know antipodean correspondent i wonder there's obviously a very specific example of this in australia where steve smith had to step back for reasons Mm. that weren't his own choice it seems to me that it broadly has actually worked okay that he sort of you know he does seem to be quite an active leader within the team you know sometimes you know he'll be there sort of pointing out fielding positions and stuff but do you think that's the broad consensus that that sort of worked okay having him i think so i think to be honest that that steve smith always perhaps sat slightly funnily as a as a test captain because he obviously has an incredible he obviously has a good cricket brain and he's obviously an incredible cricketer but i mean the the guy isn't you know isn't i don't know there's no way to say this that that feels not um sort of prejudicial but he's he's not kind of cut from the cloth that you would necessarily cut test captains from Mm -hmm. you know the kind of quirk and the idiosyncrasies and the kind of weirdnesses of the guy don't necessarily lend themselves to leadership in the way that test cricket is often has often molded its its leaders so again i think that you know um it's now in a place with um 
yeah, that, that it's much, it's a much, it feels like a much more um, kind of conventional captaincy situation with him there to offer the kind of brilliant nuggets of advice along the way that might be game-changing, but you wouldn't necessarily want to be leading you every day. From the archives, and for this episode, Andy is going to take us back to the moment when two cricketing greats met by the Solent in 2000. Shane Warne strides into bowl and lets the ball rip. Rahul Dravid meets the delivery with the solidity that you'd expect of a man nicknamed the War. They're in Portsmouth. It's July 2020 and Hampshire are hosting Kent in the county championship at the United Services Recreation Ground at Burnaby Road. Just a little uh, footnote, sub-editing footnote. When you say 2020, you mean 2000. But oh, sorry. On. I mean 2000. Yes, yeah. I do. Yes, very true. Uh, how have they got here? So Shane Warne's joined Hampshire. He's 30 at this stage in his career. He's taken 366 test wickets and has just been named one of Wisdom's five cricketers of the century. He's at the height of his powers, really, at this point. Indeed. Near the height of his powers. Dravid has joined Kent. He's 27 at this stage in his career and he's about a quarter of the way through what will end up being a test career of 164 matches. He's already scored almost 3,000 test runs. He'll finish with over 13,000. So actually still reasonably early days. They're both playing county cricket for the first time. As an aside, 2000 was quite the year for overseas players in county cricket. The top run scorer was Darren Lehman. The bowler with the best average was Courtney Walsh. And the leading wicket taker was a certain Glenn McGrath. I mean, extraordinary to have all those players in County and talking about, at the same season. about what you were talking about earlier in terms of going and watching New Zealand and kind of having the opportunity to see the stars at a smaller ground. Well, as soon as you have that lineup just on the county circuit, then you can see them all over the country kind of week in, week out. It was kind of a, a golden age without us realising it in that regard because we certainly don't have that level of international talent playing you know regular county cricket anymore i think that's right i mean you still get great county you still get great overseas players but that is that is i think hard to match or hard to come close to now despite their big named signings neither county was setting the championship alight kent had won just two of their eight games while hampshire just one of nine i should just spare a moment to explain why we're in portsmouth Um, Hampshire had actually been playing there regularly for over 100 years by this stage. But by 2000, Portsmouth's future as an outground was pretty uncertain. Hampshire hadn't played there the previous year due to concerns about the pitch, and they were in the middle of building the Rose Bowl, which was soon to become their main home. State-of-the-art new home, yeah. Exactly. Uh, And still, you know, still highly regarded to this day. Um, Hampshire win the toss and bat, and they're in some bother at 189 for six when Warren comes to the crease. He counterattacks, hitting 13 boundaries in a faster than runnable 69 and helps Hampshire to a respectable 320. I think a reminder, of course, that he was always actually a a, a bit of an Mm all-rounder. He then gets to work with the ball and dismisses Kent opener and now England managing director, Rob Key, for a duck, gets Kent number three, David Master, for another duck, and number five, Alan Wells, for just seven. God, David Master, that's a name I haven't... uh, Sorry, yeah, Raoul Dravid can't get out, but David Master, um, that's not a name that I have heard for a long, long time. That's a trip Mm. down memory lane. It's always one of the pleasures, isn't it, of, of an old county scorecard, uh, some of these figures being being brought back. Mm. Um, 
I now turn to Tanya Oldred's match report in The Guardian. At times he spun it two inches, sometimes two feet, sometimes it went straight on. One bounced high over Dravid's shoulder early in the day. He even tried a bouncer, but he could not phase the Indian batsman. And then finally, Dravid has claimed that he can pick Warren from the hand. It certainly looked like it. Sometimes he padded Warren away. Sometimes he stepped back and cut him. Sometimes he drove him. Sometimes he stretched forward to muffle the spin. So I think you get the idea. Dravid had a, had a plan here. He is eventually undone by leg spin, but it's not Warren's. Instead, Dravid played on to a delivery from Giles White, who was very much an occasional bowler. The Indian has made 137 of Kent's 252 runs, so really held the whole thing together. One of the things that I remember vividly from um, Gideon Haig's book on Warren was um, was Warren's absolute relish at a really genuine contest with a batsman. And what you've just read out, those match reports from Tanya Aldred, um, and that real sense of him kind of not being able to get anywhere and, you know, he's taken a, a, a few easy wickets and suddenly he comes up against uh, comes up against Dravid. Um, he must have been absolutely kind of loving that situation. You know, I don't, I don't think he would have been there thinking oh, this is all, you know, too hard bugger this for a laugh. Um, I bet he was absolutely relishing that experience and the opportunity to have that kind of a tussle. I think that's right. And you think this is how having one overseas player who's that good, you know, increases the appeal of the Canty Championship to other overseas players, doesn't it? Mm. You know, they want these duels, they want these contests. Um, So Hampshire begin the second innings with a useful but not conclusive 68-run lead. And things go wrong fast. It's 97 for 6 when Warren comes to the crease this time and there are now no heroics. He makes 4 and Hampshire slump to 136 all out. The conqueror of Dravid and opener, Giles White, carries mm. his bat for an unbeaten 80. Kent are left needing 205 to win and Dravid and Key's century partnership ensures they get there comfortably, winning by 6 wickets. Now, it's a chastening innings for Warren, who sends down 31 wicketless overs. Dravid finishes unbeaten on 73. Fairly conclusive who's won that duel. Definitely. And just reflecting for a minute on the, on Giles White being the person who, who takes the wicket, I wonder the extent, I don't know if you've seen the dismissal, but I wonder whether it's the extent of that, that age-old thing of suddenly you kind of let your guard down. You know, he's there... Um, Dravid's there, you know, really using every ounce of his concentration against Warren and then this kind of very occasional, you know, basically an opener who occasionally sends down a couple of overs in for a laugh in the nets comes on and suddenly you're just totally letting a guard down and some, you know, horrible full toss comes down and you miss it because mm-hmm. you're just not, you know, not focusing in the same way. In a way, maybe that's the, you know, we always talk about whether Stuart McGill and Shane Warren could, should have bowled more in, in, in tandem, mm. but, you know, maybe the Giles White Shane Warren um, duo was uh, well, <laughs> something that should have been more more exercised I, in cricket. I think I think you're right. So White had twelve first class wickets in his whole career, of which one is Dravid, which gives wow. you an idea. You, t- you would take um, that. I have to say, you would take yeah. that. But I think you're. It's that thing, isn't it, that a captain loves? You know, tossing on the occasional bowler, um, just in the hope that exactly as you say, the batsman takes their eye off things. Mm. Um, so Dravid wins the duel, Kent win the game, and by the end of the season it turns out to be a vital result because Hampshire are relegated to Division 2 while Kent finish a place above them and narrowly survive. 
It also turns out to be Hampshire's last county championship game at Portsmouth. So the Rose Bowl opens the following year, which means Hampshire make much less use of their outgrounds. They basically last, sent a cricket up the Rose Bowl. Last game to this day. So it's still a ground that's Last game that's to this unused. day. Yeah. Right. yeah. Which is, which is interesting under- because Portsmouth is quite a big city, isn't it? Yeah, it, it brings you back to that challenge that I think all the counties have, which is when you spend money, as Hampshire have done, on a you know world-class facility, yeah, you want to you use, want it, to all use the time. it. You yep. want Exactly, and the money matters. You know, The challenge of that, exactly as you say, is that you lose that opportunity to get to the outgrounds and to take you know cricket to fans who are you know Hampshire fans but don't live don't live as near to the Rose Bowl. So yep. they have yep. played a few outground games more recently, um, but but not yet at Portsmouth. Hmm. So definitely worth saying that Warn and Dravid live up to their billing over the course of the season. So Dravid finishes as Kent's leading run scorer, over a thousand runs and an average just a shade under fifty. He scores over double the runs of Kent's next highest scorer, mm. which I think does give you some idea of a player really carrying their side. Well, that's a good it's a it's a good signing isn't it really you feel you feel satisfied as a as a manager if you've made that signing well i think you're that's always sort of the test you're applying isn't it for an overseas player you want them to bring something quite special you can agree that dravid did um and warren was hampshire's leading wicket taker with 70 taking almost a third of their wickets so similarly very much carrying things and with both of them whilst it's a good signing you also wonder whether as you say, carrying things, whether at that point you kind of think, mm, are overseas players actually kind of patching up what's otherwise a bit of a leaky ship? Yes, yeah. Well, this this is, I mean, you'd certainly say that Dravid presumably batted Kent to survival there. Um, he never played for Kent again, although he did curiously play in the 2003 County One Day Tournament for the Scottish Saltires, who were then taking part, and that, that feels like that might be a, a from the archives in the making Isn't, isn't the Scottish Saltires the... Scottish national team well we'll have to dig into this I think at that time they were operating in a county tournament and presumably the rules maybe allowed them to bring in an overseas player in the same way that other counties did but I agree it's a little a little curious um one returned to Hampshire back in 2004 and captained the side for the next four seasons Mm. the Shane Warne stand at the now named Aegeus Bowl is proof that things went rather well for him the review and for this episode we have been listening to the englishman abroad it was first broadcast on bbc radio 4 in back in 1980 um, and if you didn't catch it then you can't catch it now either because it was on iplayer and it's now and it's now expired um but we had some fun listening to it so here we are today um it's uh, written by christopher douglas um he's a pretty prolific radio writer um he performs and co-writes ed reardon's week um a long a long-running sitcom about a struggling writer um and also dave podmore a comedy series about an anarchic cricketer he's written a radio intriguingly he's written a radio adaptation of tristram shandy um and he's also the author of a biography of douglas Jardine and uh, Douglas Jardine is, I suppose, one of the Englishmen uh, abroad in this in this podcast. One of the central Englishmen abroad because this podcast is all about the Bodyline uh, series. Um, give us an overview, Andy, of of what this uh, of what the radio play actually covers. So it's the Bodyline series, really, in the fullest sense of the word, in that we start in the preceding English summer 
where Jardine is planning to the extent that he's getting in touch with county captains and bowlers and trying to really set the foundations for the approach in Australia. Um, and then we get a bit of the aftermath as well at the other end um, in terms of you know how, how I guess, Larwood and Jardine's futures in particular were, were, were very heavily marked by the events of that series. Um, we, we scamper through the series, and I actually mean that as a, as a compliment. Um, mm. and, and this, I think, is one of the great things you can do in radio in that you sort of have these... Um, you can have these sort of little snappy scenes that I think are somehow much harder to do in TV where everything's a lot more... You don't, you don't have to work to link them up in the same way as you do in TV. You can just do the little grabs of the interesting stuff and jump from kind of jump from one to... Because this is what, it was about an hour yeah. an hour and a bit long, something like that? It, it's really just over an hour, which I think is, is kind of remarkable. Um, I mean, I think more generally, and we'll get to this in other ways, I think it compares very, very well with the Australian TV series, um, which has become, I guess, mm. the as much as there is the definitive kind of cultural bit of work on body line which i think is something like six or seven episodes so it does give you an idea of a different um yes sort of different approach to it and and following on from that one of the things that's kind of quite um uh fun to see is the kind of range of radio craft that goes into kind of creating a picture of this overall um this overall uh kind of situation um all the way from and one of the things i particularly enjoyed was some of the replications of the radio um replays as it were of mm. some of the games where you would have someone you know cross to so and so in your Perth studio and you'd have bill sitting there and he would do the whole day's play in five minutes and he'd do it as if like and so you know jardine's coming out to bat and oh he's bold and but then you'd have so it'd all be massively condensed the highlights for radio but then you would have them there with you know a little they would you know use some sticks and a ball to replicate the sound of some stumps being hit by 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 the ball and i'd kind of forgotten about that sort of um tradition but 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 actually how in the hands of a skilled presenter, you can encapsulate a whole day's play in five minutes, kind of quite um, uh, with with a kind of a suitable degree of excitement, I suppose, around it. It's that advantage, I guess, you have when you're doing a radio play about cricket, that cricket has such a rich relationship with radio, as you say. It has those mm. things going right back to the early days, those, um, as you say, that sort of conceit around um, kind of summarised commentary. I really like the device we got in one scene where we had a description of incidents going on in a game and we shifted from the players in the middle back to the commentary box. Mm. And we're able to see as the listener that the commentators have got this completely wrong, that it's a business as usual, uncontentious incident in the field. And the commentators think it's a big row. Um, And it's rather brilliant because it shows how we do this all the time, presumably, how we read too much into what's going on. um, And and also how how commentators are paid to be certain you know a commentator can never say actually i have no idea what's going on here they have to state a very particular view about something and so inevitably at times they are going to get that wrong because they're not there on the field of play however experienced they are of, of similar incidents yes take take you have to take an opinion take a stance um Coming back again to the Aussie series on Body Line, which I think dates back to the mid '80s, so is is sort of con- they're kind of contemporary pieces of work. 
I thought the characters here are portrayed with a lot more care and a lot more nuance than the caricatures. That's not to say that they are completely nuanced. I mean, there were certainly moments with Jardine where I thought this approached parody, but it's very hard to say with Jardine because you get these lines about ruddy convict and you think, God, this is this seems absurd. And then you read about Jardine and you and you wonder, actually, maybe, maybe this is quite plausible. And, and I guess the fact that um, Christopher Douglas actually later in life, I think back in the early 2000s, later in his life, back in the early 2000s, has written a biography, suggests he, he cared about getting to um, the detail of who Jardine was. What, what, what did you yeah, think about this, this I mean, cast we, we ended up with? It's, it's interesting because I, I agree, you know, there were times when I wondered whether, um, particularly when it comes to, you know, the accents and you have the accent of Harold Mar- Larwood, the, you know, Nottingham miner's son next to the accent of Pelham Mar- Warner or Douglas Jardine. And, and it's, it sounds to I as like caricature, but at the same time, I suppose you do remember that then these people were from absolutely vastly different backgrounds and this was part of the context for why it was such a charged you know charged situation was the kind of social differences between all of these um between all of these all of these men i suppose i do when you um read and it is of course mostly reading when you're going back to the 1930s about these series often it is hard to have any sense of um humanness about the you know about the situation and i think that radio is a beautiful way of injecting some of that and sort of realizing that these are you know a, a, a real people and uh, you know it, it, it's, it's a cliche to say that making history come to life but it kind of does that in the moments when which is kind of slightly ridiculous there's one moment at the beginning when harold larwood is with it's with you know bill bill bows or someone like that and they're standing at the urinal having been summoned to lunch with jardine and you know it's kind of they're standing in the bathroom mm. um peeing next to each other and they're kind of having a chat and you suddenly realize that these were the sort of situations in which these the kind of their views and their strategies would have would have been formed not necessarily at a urinal but you know in the sense of the relationship between the players and how that and how that developed and you know so the what it would have been like on the australian train across australia across the nullarbor out to perth where every town you stop in everyone just wants to see bradman and what that would have been like for all of the other players and indeed what it had been like for Bradman and I'd never really thought about that and I don't think that people really you know when you read Jack Fingleton's accounts of of Mm. the series you don't really read too much about that but I thought that was another really interesting angle I completely agree. I think it's that attention to detail. I love the, the the Australians on the train and, and sort of putting on their show every time they mm. got to a, a town or village. I similarly loved and had, if I had ever remembered, had forgotten the detail that for one of the warm up games where they tried body line, um, Jardine declared that he was off fishing and left it to yes. show, which, which I, I thought was rather yes. wonderful. Washed his hands um, of the whole thing. The the details I think matter because I did realise listening to this that much like that Australian top order I may have had enough of body line at this stage and I have to stress this is no comment on the quality of this play that I think was was great and you know stands up very well forty years on it, it's just a reflection of the fact that if you read a fair bit about cricket you get a lot of body line yeah. and I was sort of left wondering is there still scope to do something really new with this story? I'd almost be fascinated to let someone have a go at it who sort of approached it from an entirely different perspective because sort of the basics of the story, the kind of um, 
uh, maniac English captain with mm. his, in mm. some cases, supportive players and in some cases, you know, horrified Open, Openly statesmen. rebellious players, yeah. It is for me. I'm I'm a little worn out with it. But 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 what what I mean? Do you do you think there's do you think the story's kind of been fully? T- do you think there's scope for someone to have a have a fresh go at this now? Gosh, that's an interesting question, and it would take a more creative mind than mine to um, to kind of delve into that. I suppose I suppose it's a story that has become so monumental and defining in the history of cricket that it's difficult to be. Um, it's kind of easy to be, not easy, but but you can be revisionist about the kind of key principles of it and questions of empire and questions of moral rightness and, you know, all of these kinds of and questions of class as well um, and questions of the inter- intersection between sports and politics. Um, but it's, it is kind of hard to get a fresh perspective. But, but again, I kind of felt that this in some ways did... Um, I didn't spend the entire podcast thinking or the entire, sorry, radio play thinking that um, oh, I've heard all of this before. I did, though, spend a fair bit of time thinking, I wonder how true this is. And mm, I wonder how mm. much of this is actually based in truth. You know, moments like when the English um, ship arrives in wherever it arrives in Perth and an Australian fan comes out and rows out and under the porthole kind of shouts abuse at the England England players like nice detail nice kind of reference to what it would have been like for that to be your first contact with the Australian people you know all of that kind of thing as, as a touring English cricketer but I was always just interested I wonder whether this is based in facts or not and I suppose mm-hmm. one would never know without going and, 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 and looking into it in, in great detail and I thought I that guess... was an interesting situation to be in as a listener not to know mm what was facts and what was fiction we, we touched on this didn't we recently with that historical fiction um novel we reviewed on wg grace it's that mm. trick isn't it if you've done mm. your research and where you stretch beyond the research how do you how do you make it plausible um and it, it did make you think you know you wonder this rivalry that remains so strong to this day some of the language being used obviously particularly by jardine I think is harder for us to relate to today. I mean, this idea mm. that he seemed to have, and I agree with you, I don't know how much of this exactly is true or not, about sort of putting Australia in their place. In their place, yes. Um, when, when, I guess when you sometimes wonder about the fires that fuel this rivalry, that's a that's sort of a helpful steer, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's certainly not something you could um, you could say today in the same in the same terms. Thank goodness. Um, so that was the one hundred and sixty eighth episode of Reverse Swept Radio. Um, next time, uh, goodness knows what we're going to be talking about. Next time, you'll have to tune in and find out.